Welcome to the Expansive CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman, founder of Expansive CEO and X Squared Wealth Planning. Buckle in as we explore how to create true prosperity and build a business and a life that expands beyond yourself and makes a dent in the universe. Welcome everyone to this episode of Financial Fridays with Brad Haynes of Juncture Wealth Strategies on the Expansive CEO Podcast. Today is Friday, May 19th, and we are going to talk about some things that have been super uh, hot in the media right now, um, including a market update, what, what we can expect for you know the next few weeks, kind of projection going forward, but also the headline. What's the headline everyone has been talking about? That has been the debt ceiling and the debt limit. We want to like open that up. What does that mean? You know, we we get those sound bites on you know headlines and talking heads on CNN and MSNBC and all of that, and we want to break it down. What does it actually mean, and how can we help you understand what's happening better? The next thing we're going to talk about is market breadth. The breadth of trading and what that means from the standpoint of, you know, how the market moves. So those are kind of the topics we're going to go through today. And I want to start with, uh, start with a market update. So Brad, thank you for being here as always. What's going on, man? Well, it's been a wild ride the last couple of weeks. So it's been super fun. Um, the market has been rallying pretty nicely. I should say certain parts of the market have been rallying nicely. We've had some pretty strong earnings coming in from the large technology companies and for, from certain consumer discretionary companies. It's been really, 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 really good. Uh, Deere came out, John Deere came out, and that's a bellwether um, for the agriculture and construction um, industries. And so they came out and just crushed their earnings and actually guided upwards for the future of saying, yeah, we actually think this is going to be going even better. Uh, we estimate farms are probably going to uh, need about 10%. Their sales will probably go up around 10% because a lot of orders are going to be coming in from uh, agricultural producers and some, some larger construction projects. So all told, the market seems to be doing fairly well. There's lots of different risk risk um, that's emanating underneath the surface. Um, you know, obviously we have the debt ceiling that we'll talk about in a few minutes. Uh, we also have the fact that year to date, the breadth of the market has been pretty narrow. And so we're gonna talk also a little bit about why that is just a cautionary tale um, going forward for at least a little while um, on the US equity markets. That said, the international development markets have been the winner so far year to date. They've, they've done very, very well compared to the S&P 500 um, for the last six months. The EM has actually started to uh, try to catch up. The emerging markets has tried to catch up a little bit. Um, but pretty much everything else has had kind of a rough year to date, a rough last six months. So it's something we need to, to just take into consideration as the Fed you know, is going to meet um, here in the next couple of weeks. Uh, middle of June is their next meeting. Um, there's about a 50-50 probability between raising interest rates by another quarter of a percent or 25 basis points or pausing 
uh, Jerome Powell, the chairman of the FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee, said today, hey, I think we've done enough. I'm open for the conversation of pausing. Now, that's really, really important. And I wanna emphasize how important that is because the last six times the Fed has paused an interest rate hiking cycle, the next 12 months, the S&P 500 has returned on average 20%. Now, not all the time, again, that's an average, but the median was pretty close as well, around 20, 21%. There was one of those six times, so six different pausing cycles, that it was negative. But that's a pretty good odds on bet that things are looking up for the next six to 12 months, at least in the US markets. Um, additionally, it's been about seven months since we hit our low in October of 22, 2022. That's when we hit our low in the S&P 500. Well, we haven't retested that low in that long time period. Generally speaking, if we haven't retested the low within seven months, we typically don't. We typically, that is the low for the cycle and we will gradually start to heal itself. Now, that doesn't mean we're not gonna have some volatility here in the summer. We typically do. It's been my call from the beginning of the year that the first half year is gonna be very volatile, which um, unfortunately I've been correct on <laughs> to, to many, many clients' chagrin. Um, but the second half, the probabilities are starting to line up then it's going to be a really good equity market, both internationally and in the U.S. So it's something that we want to start. If you have extra cash on the sidelines, if you're an advisor and you have a lot of clients, a little bit higher cash balance than you typically do, it's really time to start putting that to work, either dollar cost averaging in over a few months or uh, investing it um, because it's, it's those types of, of situations where, you know, the first quarter of a bull market is typically climbing that wall of worry, if you will. And right now there's a lot to worry about. And yet the market has been coming up since October. So it's something we want to want to keep top of mind. So that is, I, I want to uh, mention something that you, that you just spoke about that both international and U.S. equities are poised for, you know, potentially a good second half of the year. And it's been a long time, right, since the international markets have been in that place. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Is there anything we should be looking at there between developed internationals, uh, which would be like big multinational companies, other, you know, developed countries, um, and emerging markets? which tend to be, you know, the, the markets that are burgeoning into having a, a strong middle class that would be considered our emerging markets. What do you, what do you see in, in that regard? How diversified um, are we moving in that, you know, in those spaces? So it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, international markets have always seemed to be that promising future, right? And, and, and for the past really five to seven years, it's been just that, it's been a promise. Whereas the S&P 500 has just 
overwhelmingly beaten them in terms of performance. But I think we have to worry, we have to watch that and become, and not to become so US centric that we forget that other places actually are really good investments sometimes. Um, so we look at it in the context of the last five years. What's the last five years return then on those areas? Well, emerging markets and, and developed markets have been terrible. They've actually had negative returns for the past five years. Um, in fact, developed markets are negative 2.2% average for the last five years and emerging markets are negative 16%. So quite a bit different, okay? So why would I be talking about those and that? Well, a couple of reasons. One is they're cheap, really cheap compared to US stocks. US stocks, particularly the indices, have been bid up so much because of these large technology companies whose market values overwhelmingly influence the index. So the S&P 500, the top 10 to 20 stocks drive almost all of the return, almost all of it. And we're gonna talk about a little, little bit about, about that in the breadth section because it's something that I, people need to understand. Um, whereas the, the structure and the sector makeup of developed markets and of emerging markets can be very different. And they can actually really um, drive really good returns over a short period of time. Um, a lot of people can't remember back to the early 2000s when emerging markets and commodities took off and they, exploded in value. And that is not to say that what we're saying is going to happen now, but it is definitely time where people need to start looking and saying, okay, they did poorly over the last five years. Typically there's a reversion to the mean, right? Where returns, if they're super negative, usually will 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 balance out to the, the average. Um, and that's what we think is going to happen. We think one fantastic growth potential Two, it's, it's, the, the dollar has been strong for a long, long time because the Fed's been ahead of the curve in, in the sense that ahead of the ECB, the European Central Bank. Um, and so once we pause, Europe may raise another one or two times their interest rates, and then they're going to pause. And their inflation was driven by commodity inflation. So their inflation is actually um, looking to drop off a cliff pretty quickly. So we think that's going to be a, a, a great market to take advantage of some really inexpensive equity investments. Similarly, once the Fed pauses interest rate cycles, that U.S. dollar will either stabilize or start to drop, okay? Because the differential in growth will become a little bit more even. Um, as that happens, emerging market stocks, typically ones that are pegged to the US dollar, do quite well, okay? Um, particularly if the US dollar starts to drop, all international investments gain in value because they're denominated in foreign currency. So we have established a 20% 20, 20 position in the developed international. I will tell you, we're looking to grow that position based on certain criteria um, and, uh, and, and we, we look forward to it. We're probably gonna end up with uh, 50 to 60% international at some point. Um, so 
kind of give you an idea as to where we're going, to where we are. Uh, up until about a year ago, we had zero in international, very, very little. Um, so this is a big shift then, like you're, you're seeing like a very significant opportunity here yeah. is same. Yeah. Based on those numbers. Yep. Most, most of it is based on the narrowness of the breadth. So we'll talk a little bit about that. in a few Yeah. Minutes. Yeah. So, and actually I think that tees up that conversation perfectly because you just mentioned, you know, especially in the S and P 500, um, just to re reiterate what that is for people, that's the 500 largest companies in the U S by market cap. So out of those five, literally 500, that's what the 500 is, 500 different companies. Tell me again, how many are carrying most of the return? 10 to 20 stocks. 10 to 20 stocks. That's it. Out of 500. Yep. And you definitely know, if you're listening to this, you definitely know at least a couple of those stocks, right? Um well, and they're all the same industry, right? They're all the same sector, right? So, yeah, let's let's talk about that a little bit because I think when we talk, when we give those numbers, you know, ten out of five hundred—that's like half a percent. I don't know, <laughs> public math. Um, obviously, math, math, math in public, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, five percent, five out of five hundred is. 1%. So we've got 2% up to maybe 4% of the whole index making up the majority of the return. And so when I have explained breadth before, I'll say what I, what I'll say, and then we'll have you go, you know, go into the whole technical um, piece of it is that, you know, that means this small sector, these 10 to 20 stocks that are all within similar, um, you know, similar parts of the economy, if that's carrying everything, it's, it's painting more of a rosy picture of the overall economy than might actually be true. So if the other 480 stocks that are part of, you know, manufacturing or healthcare or, you know, finance, if those are not doing well, but these top 20, 10 to 20 stocks are really doing well, then we're, we're not actually getting a full picture of what the economy is doing. So that's my layman's, you know, uh, explanation of it and expand on that for us. You did a great job at explaining that. So that's fantastic. Um, so it's interesting to me and I'm going to share my screen if I can. Oh yeah. Absolutely. A little treat for anyone watching on YouTube. So just a reminder there that Expansive CEO Podcast is also on YouTube. Absolutely. You see our beautiful faces. Yes. All right. So as you can see, you can see my screen, correct, Hannah? Yep. Yep. Got it. Okay. So the green line is the typical S&P 500. It's the one we always hear about. It's the one we were just talking and referring to about um, it being weighted, each of the positions being weighted by the market value. So, you know, a company that's worth $2 trillion is four times impactful on the index 
than a company that's worth 500 billion, right? So it's, it, it's, it really, it's scaffolded by or positioned by the market value. Um, so that's the green line. So the white line is the S&P 500, but the way they weight each of the 500 positions is equal. All of them are, you know, are, are 2%, okay? 2%. That's not right, but it's close. It's everybody's equal weight. Okay. Right. Um, you can see that the S&P 500 index year to date, so this is year to date, tracks exactly until it doesn't, which is in the beginning of March. Okay. Something happened in the beginning of March where all of a sudden the S&P 500 continues to go up and the, the weight, the s the equal weighted S&P 500 drops off and really doesn't perform. So equal weighted, same stocks, just different weightings um, are up 1.16% this year, okay? Whereas the S&P 500 is showing up 9% this year. Mm. So that shows you, so what's the difference? The only difference is the weighting, which means the largest companies have produced the most gains. So that's essentially, um, I've seen a couple of research articles that have indicated that uh, essentially uh, $2 trillion of the gains in the S&P 500 this year are from the top 10 stocks, okay? Wow. The rest of the 490 stocks have increased 170 billion. So that gives you some scale mm -hmm. that were very, very narrow. There's only a few stocks, few very, very large stocks that are doing very, very well this year. Now, it means all the ones we've heard of Apple, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Netflix, those, those guys have done fantastic this year. Last year, not so much. This year, they've done very, very well. Tesla, obviously, like Tesla dropped by 70% last year in 2022. This year, it's almost doubled. So it's it's done very, very well, relatively speaking. Um, so those companies, those large companies that are technology focused have done extremely well. But the remainder of all the companies have not done as well. They've done, you know, 1%. But that's pretty subpar compared to the overall index. Now, what does that mean? Why, why is that important, Brad? Why is that even a consideration? Well, when the economy is doing well, okay, and the equity market is healthy, it means most companies are participating. Because regardless of industry, regardless of business type, regardless of uh, sector, most people are doing well. In this scenario where you have 10 doing well, 490 kind of struggling to, 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 to break even or eat out a little gain, it means it's an extremely narrow market, which means it's easy to fall, okay? Because what happens is when so many people buy those large tech technology companies, at some point, 
there's no other money to buy into. I mean, it's just all the buyers have bought. Everybody who owns it already owns it. And the, and the marginal buyer isn't there. When that, when that happens, it just starts to fall under its own weight. And then it tends to, to have a pretty um, aggravated or extended bear market for those particular companies. Now, that's not what I'm saying is going to happen. What I'm saying is those companies will probably slow down dramatically as we pause and as, we, as economic growth starts to accelerate, it will see it, you will see a broadening out of the market, which means small caps, which have done not great over the past number of years, will probably start to outperform large cap tech, okay, by a lot, okay? So that reversion of the mean where small cap technology companies, small cap companies overall, which have really taken a back seat the last five years um, to the S&P 500 and to commodities will actually start to take over some of that leadership. Um, so that's where international should do probably better, emerging markets should do better, small caps should be doing better, large cap companies, i.e. the large, super large tech companies will probably moderate their growth so everything else goes up quite a bit and they just moderate or come down a little bit. And that's where we have that reversion to the mean. And that's where we see the broadening out of the equity markets. At this point, we're probably going to see some more volatility um, because they, they've gotten overextended. As you saw from the chart, it, that spread is quite wide and that is very, very rare. Um, the last time we saw a market this kind of narrow, um, in my memory, okay, this is your line of my memory, was the late 90s. Oh, wow. Like, yeah. So the NASDAQ in the late 90s uh, was a very, that was that became a very, very narrow market in 98, 99. And then in 2001, it all started to correct. Um, and it corrected, the NASDAQ corrected for 15 years before it broke even. Now, that's not what I'm saying is going to happen here. What I'm saying, though, is there's going to be a reversion to where small caps who are inherently more risky, i.e. risky from a business standpoint, uh, will start to take on um, better returns, whereas the large cap stock, technology stocks that have been bid up so much over the last number of years will probably take a little bit of a backseat in term, terms of market leadership. Mm. Super interesting. Yeah. So that was, you hit on the question I was going to ask, which was, yeah, I mean, that, that spread, if you go and, and look at the graph, um, the spread is huge. It's 8% it's where, wild. where they had tracked almost like you, like you showed, they had almost tracked exactly together for a really long time. So yeah, it's interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. Um, usually they're really, really tight to each other. And in this scenario, in, in the last couple months, it just has widened out pretty significantly. Interesting. So I think that also brings us straight into this next topic, which is, you know, the debt ceiling, right? This, it, um, it's not exactly corollary, but, uh, it kind of plays into, the Fed decision and, you know, all of these other pieces, you know, these are, these are factors, um, that we're looking at. So tell us your, um, 
understanding of what's what's happening with the debt ceiling conversation. Okay. So the debt ceiling, which we've heard a lot about in the financial press, the mainstream press, um, you know, is essentially the the legislation that allows the United States to go into more debt to fund their their bills, to fund, you know, paying Social Security, paying the military, paying government employees, providing the services for VA and all the different things that the government does um, in their day-to-day business. But there's a statutory limit. There's a law that says we cannot exceed a certain amount. Well, that law has to be updated as we go further into debt and we spend more money than we take in from tax revenue. Um, and so it, it seemingly happens every couple of years, which it does, okay? And normally it's a non-event. It's truly a non-event. They just kind of rubber stamp it through and let it go and, and everything's fine. Uh, the last time that we had a acrimonious debate about the debt limit was in 2011. And 2011, it went so in so far that we ran out, like they actually had to furlough uh, a lot of government employees without pay. I should say without pay, but I'll get back to that because they actually did get paid. Um, but they furloughed people unpaid for weeks until they I got Yeah, I didn't realize that was all the way back in 2011. I remember that. I remember that situation. Um, so yeah, wow. It's been that was a while ago. Yeah. So what happened is in 2011 is we were essentially down 15 to 20% in the equity markets as a result of that, that acrimonious debate. Now they eventually, they eventually got a deal done. They increased the debt limit. All of the furloughed government employees got back pay. So they, they, they got paid. Um, but then we went on. Well, now today, um, we're at that same type of place. Now, over the past couple of weeks, by, uh, President Biden, the administration, and Congress, uh, uh, Speaker McCarthy, have said they've made positive comments about we think we can get the deal done by January, by June 1st, which the Treasury Secretary Yellen, Janet Yellen, has said June 1st is kind of a drop dead date. We kind of need to have a lot, we have a lot of bills coming due and we need to, to, to raise some, some money. We have not been able to raise money in the, the treasury bill market for a couple of weeks. So that is kind of starting to add up in terms of we need to, we need to issue a lot of treasury bills to, to start to fund the, the uh, basically the checking account for the government so they can start to pay the bills. Um, now, the probability is this is going to get done. It's going to get done. Um, I, I think both parties are very, very aware that the U.S. citizen will hold both of them accountable if we default on our bills, okay? Because that will be disastrous. That will cause economic growth to fall. It will cause the U.S. dollar to be less trustworthy than it has been in the past. Uh, U.S. Treasury debt yields will go up as the marginal buyer, the marginal investor, whether it be an institution or a central bank or a government or a company, um, has to now weigh a risk premium 
into U.S. Treasury bills. So that again increases those yields that are expected, which means now the U.S. government has to pay higher interest on a larger amount of debt. Um, now there is a an amendment in the Constitution that essentially gives the president the ability to just raise the debt limit unilaterally. If Congress can't come together, they can't figure out a good way to get statutorily to increase it. Um, he has the unilateral power to invoke that. No one has ever done it hmm. in my memory, at least that I can remember. No one has ever invoked that. And that's kind of like the last straw. That's like, you don't want to have to have a president do that because it shows uh, that, the that the Congress is broken, it, it, that, that people are just not negotiating one with, with each other very well. Um, so that in and of itself is a, is a higher risk factor for other people considering that. So low probability, high impact event. Um, we're to the point that I, I, I would be I would be shocked if they didn't get a deal done by June first. Um, even though we might hear, you know, different things for negotiation purposes, um, but Janet Yellen has been very clear that the U.S. has to pay their bills. That the U.S. dollar is is the reserve currency of the world right now, and we enjoy a lot of benefits from having that be the reserve currency. And it's the reserve currency. Why? Because people can trust it. They know the U.S. is going to pay the bills. We're the wealthiest country in the world by a lot. And so that has engendered a lot of trust. If we abuse that trust, uh, eventually it will go away. And that will cost us a lot more economically and socially. So um, I think the deal is going to get done. They're going to raise the debt limit. And... Um, We'll, we'll be on with business. But you've heard a lot about it because again, if it does happen, it's very, very impactful. Yeah, so the thing that I wanted to ask about is this, you know, anyone who has an iPhone and, uh, you know, goes to your stock app, I have it on my phone right now, right? And you've got the news. And so we're looking at headlines all the time. and. So when it says, when you see Bloomberg or when you see ABC News or CNBC and they're talking about, I don't know, you know, looking for a pause, looking for McCarthy's um, opinions on, you know, what's happening and how much of the market volatility that we are seeing right now is tied to this news cycle where, you know, from like a practical standpoint, when you mentioned that that last time that that like furlough happened in 2011, I did not think it was that long ago. Like for some reason, that's very vivid in my memory. Um, maybe it's because that was the year Clara was born. And so I was, I don't know, I was working at home. Uh, it was exhausting. And I yeah, that's imprinted on my memory. But I mean, I remember some contentious, um, you know, times with the debt limit in the last couple of years, but nothing that went to a furlough like that. And so if the, if the reality and the probability is that everyone's just arguing for the sake of arguing, and it's going to get pushed through before it, before the drop dead deadline that we have, 
like what's, yeah, what's, what's happening in the markets in response to, because the headlines say the market is doing this because of the debt ceiling. How much of that is actually true in your estimation? Uh, I mean, some of it, I, it's a great, uh, I heard an interview with a, um, a journalist from Bloomberg and he is one of the anchors he's been doing it for 25 years. Um, so he and I are about the same age. And he said, you know, when I started out at Bloomberg as a reporter, he said, my, my job every day was to come in and explain why the market was doing what it was doing. He said, and there were some days we didn't know. We had no idea. So we just had to put something together that kind of made some sense. And unfortunately, that is true a lot of the time. Um, you know, the things that impact the day-to-day -day movements are the news flow, which the debt limit is certainly part of it. So that is, it is right now part of all of the day-to-day -day volatilities. You know, like this week, uh, Senator McCarthy or um, Kevin McCarthy came out and made some some positive statements um, about the debt. We think the debt deal, the debt limit deal, will get done. Um, the market rallies a little bit. Okay, so that was impactful for that day, for the last couple of days, anyways, of uh, of, of coming up into um, of moving the markets. But there's also underlying, there is, you know, uh, the regional banking, what's what's happening there? Well, during this week, we also had um, Western Alliance Bank Corp come out and say, hey, our deposits have not only stabilized, they've grown over the past couple of months. That was very impactful for the regional banking stocks, okay? And because those have been kind of a hot button since February, that is, that also impacts the overall market because people are like, okay, well, maybe the regional banks won't implode. They won't, it won't become a credit crunch slash crisis. So let's bid up the market a little. There's a little less risk now in the, in the market. So now we can bid up the prices of the equity market a little bit more. Um, additionally, underlying that you have supply and demand. So, um, there's some really interesting uh, academic articles coming out about um, the VIX and how the trading and the options market for the Standard Poor's 500 has changed in context dramatically, which is why the VIX is not as responsive to the stress in the S&P 500 as it has been historically. So really interesting. Well, let's, okay, so the VIX is uh, an index measuring the volatility of the market. And so that's just in case you haven't heard of that yet, VIX, the VIX. Um, so keep going. Yes, it's also considered kind of a fear gauge when historically, at least up until the last year or two, well, last 16 months, you had, if, if the equity markets fell quite dramatically, the VIX really spiked up. In fact, we used, we used to trade the VIX in our portfolios because we had an instrument that had, um, we had tested it and it had a five times negative reaction. So if the S&P 500 dropped by 1%, this instrument was up by 5%, okay? 
So we use that to blunt the downside of some of the equity market declines. Um, that, that correlation or that, that linkage has been broken quite significantly over the past 16 months. So we haven't done anything with it for a very, very long time because it's trading very, very, very differently than it has historically. Part of it is because uh, retail and institutional investors have morphed their options buying and selling process to, to shy away from the VIX itself. Mm -hmm. So it's something that's interesting. It's, you know, everything is always changing in the marketplace. And so we always need to keep, uh, keep, keep tabs on it. Um, and that's what we do. So you have a lot of different factors that influence the day-to-day -day changes in equity markets. Um, and, and, and honestly, a lot of it mostly has been, what are the top 10 stocks doing? Are they doing well or are they not doing well? Um, because you'll see the broader indices falling, they'll be negative for the day. And yet the S&P 500 and NASDAQ are slightly positive because one or two big tech stocks have done well. So, hmm. so interesting as always. And um, I think we'll we'll wrap it up there for the day. We went over a whole bunch of interesting stuff. And uh, just as a reminder to everyone listening, if you have questions, if something comes across your newsfeed and you're like, what does this actually mean? I see everyone talking about it, but I don't get it. Um, send us questions. Send us your questions. You can email me at Hannah at expansiveceo.com. Uh, you can also find it, find me on LinkedIn and Instagram and Facebook um, all over the place. And you can find Brad at Juncture Wealth Strategies online as well. So send us your questions. We would love to answer um, just, you know, what, what you have on your mind as well. Um, and as always, Brad, thank you. Thank you, you for being here you. with me. Yeah, absolutely. We'll see you next time. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and be sure to like and subscribe. And again, if anything resonated with you from this episode, I would love to hear from you. Email me at Hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H, at expansiveceo.com. And tell me about it. And if you're ready for your greatest expansion, you can find ways to work with me at expansiveceo.com and at xsquaredwealthplanning.com. That's X, the numeral two, wealthplanning.com. So until next time, remember that there is enough, you are enough, and your birthright in this lifetime is to be expansive. <laughs>